Welcome to the Plain Faith Podcast, Episode 9. It was just an amazing moment. He looked at us and he said, you know, I'm, a, I'm not a good man, I'm a bad man. I don't deserve this, but God sent you guys here to save my wife and my babies. And um, I'll tell you, that's, that was a powerful moment uh, for my wife and I to share Christ with this, this young family. The Plain Faith Podcast is a podcast about missionary aviation and the stories of missionary aviators who have taken seriously Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations and are using airplanes to be His witnesses at the ends of the earth. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Your host for today's show will be Jimmy Tidmore, who, in addition to hosting this podcast, is a pastor and a pilot residing with his family in what is known as the Rocket City, Huntsville, Alabama. He is very interested in promoting missionary aviation and helping prospective missionary pilots reach the mission field. And now, with these introductions out of the way, let's get started on another great episode of the Plain Faith Podcast. Welcome back to the Plain Faith Podcast. It sure is good to be back. I'm sorry there has been such a long delay between episodes. That was not my intention. It just sort of happened. But I'm back today with another great episode that I am sure you will all enjoy. On today's show, we are going to hear from the president and co-founder of Samaritan Aviation, Mark Palm. Mark is not just the co-founder and president of Samaritan Aviation, though. He also serves with Samaritan along the Sepik River in Papua New Guinea as a pilot. In fact, the Sepik River is a 700-mile runway for Samaritan's Cessna 206 float planes. But before we get into today's episode, let me read another review we received a while back in iTunes. It is from someone named Matthew who gives the show five stars and says, Incredible insight. I just listened to the latest podcast, episode seven, and I will for sure be going back to listen to all the others. Jimmy, you are offering clarity to what it looks like to serve God through mission aviation in a very honest way. I think all kinds of people will be interested in these interviews, but anyone considering the path of mission aviation will want to hear every word of these. And again, he signs his name, Matthew. Well, Matthew, thanks for those kind words. I'm glad you are enjoying the show. I'm so thankful it is giving folks like you a glimpse into what it really looks like to serve as a missionary pilot. Now, I'd love to read your review on the show as well. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please take some time to leave us a review in iTunes. I'm doing my best to get to all of them on the show at some point. Well, enough of my blabbing. That's not what you were here for. Let's turn our attention now to Mark Palm with Samaritan Aviation. Well, Mark, I've been watching you and Samaritan Aviation from a distance now through the various social media platforms you were on. And I first began talking with folks in your organization about having you on the show way back several months ago. And I'm very excited to have the opportunity to finally speak with you today to hear about your story personally and about the story of mission of the missions organization you founded, Samaritan Aviation. So, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show today, and let me just welcome you now to the Plain Faith Podcast. Yeah, thank you, Jimmy. It's great to be with you this morning. 
All right. Well, why don't we just begin by letting you tell us a little bit about yourself, for example, where are you from, where did you grow up, and so forth? Yeah, I know I have an interesting story. I kind of grew up in a lot of places. My dad was a minister, and so as a young uh, young child, I have one of five boys in my family. We we moved around. My dad started churches in California and Arizona and pastored in Michigan and um, and then back to California. So I basically grew up kind of moving around. I think we we averaged moving about once a year uh, uh, my whole life growing up. So um, kind of the place I ended up landing as a 13-year-old was Santa Cruz, California, and that's really where I consider home and where I really foundationally... Um, uh, a lot of things that uh, formed who I am and decisions I made uh, came from uh, my time in Santa Cruz. So that's kind of kind of a short story. Yeah, my dad was a minister. He ran a homeless mission in Santa Cruz, which uh, mm-hmm. which really had a big impact on my life as well. As I was was able to to not only see ministry or see uh, people talk about Jesus, but also see people uh, physically, tangibly doing something for others in the name of Jesus. And I think that that whole idea of being the hands and feet of Jesus uh, as a young man, seeing that and being able to participate in that in Santa Cruz uh, in a homeless mission is really um, where a lot of the passion I have for others uh, physically, uh, which has shaped Samaritan aviation as well, um, came from. And, uh, you know, going back even farther than that, I, I accepted Christ when I was 10 years old. Uh, for me, it was kind of a crossroads. I had two brothers uh, that were kind of going off and doing rebellious and getting into to, to uh, running away and doing some crazy, just just getting into drugs and alcohol and some other things at a young age. And I kind of my father's a minister, and um, I kind of had a crossroads there as a ten-year-old, which way I was going to go. And um, you know, it was we had a revival meeting. I know we don't do revivals. <laughs> it doesn't seem like anyway the way we. We used to when I was a kid, at least in the church we were in, and so we mm-hmm. had a revival meeting and, uh, you know, the old-fashioned altar call, and um, yeah, I'll never forget the night I just decided I was that was uh, going to follow Jesus, and I went forward and gave my life, and um, that was the beginning of a huge change in my focus and, and my and my um, just direction of, of who of who I was going to be. All right. Well, very good. Well. From there, why don't you tell me about where aviation came onto the scene in your life, and and was your call to missions? Did did your call to missions precede that? Did they come together? How did all that? How did all that work out to get you where you are now? Yeah, aviation uh, for me has been part of my life since I was just a young young infant. Really, I mean, my grandfather was a World War II pilot. Uh, and so I heard all those stories. One of my uncles actually died in a plane crash flying. Uh, he was a pilot. Uh, another my, one of my uncles was a pilot as well. So my cousin's a fighter pilot and been a, a military uh, air force and marine pilot uh, for many years. So I, I was always uh, from a young age planning on being a either commercial or military pilot. So that was kind of the uh, place I felt like I was going. And so then the missions uh, call actually uh, came after that. All right. So in about what age did you start wrestling with a call to missions? Yeah. So for me, it was, uh, it was actually a specific moment, uh, in time. It was, it was an amazing experience. I, my dad ran a homeless mission. I attended another church in Santa Cruz for my youth group. Um, and 
activities with the other teenagers. And so uh, we had a chance to go down to build houses in Mexico when I was 16. Mm-hmm. And so going down, uh, you know, taking the bus down from Santa Cruz, and it's about an eight-hour, nine-hour drive down to the border, and then going across into Mexico and, and building a house for, for a family that didn't have anything um, was, was an amazing uh, experience. It was an eye-opener for a di- seeing a different culture for the first time. Uh, seeing what people in other parts of the world uh, experience as normal life for them uh, versus what I had always seen here in America. And then, uh, you know, having that opportunity to to make a tangible difference in someone's life, I mean, through a house, a uh, place for them to live and their families. And um, it was during that time we had some devotional times every morning. And uh, there was this one morning I was sitting on an, aban- an old abandoned well and just reading the Bible, Psalm 139, doing some prayer time. And it was just this... A moment where God spoke to me, and it was as clear as if He was sitting right next to me. And He said, "He said this. He said, I want you to use your passion for people and aviation to share my love in a remote part of the world." Mm. And that that message was it was just like someone like you and I are talking right now. And so it was. It wasn't like I wrestled with it. Uh, there was no wrestling. It was just the statement, and um, it was the okay. That's where we're going. And from that moment on, my life. Uh, changed my focus changed um you know as i looked at preparing uh for aviation all of a sudden it had missions was uh was as much a part of it as anything and um so that happened as a 16 year old in mexico and it completely changed my life all right very good that i tell you what dude that is nice when you get a call that is that uh that is that is that clear and that that quick uh, lots of us wrestle for a long time with things, so so from that perspective, you are you're fortunate. Um, let me ask you. Let me ask you uh, a, a little bit about your family now, and and what. Uh, tell me a little bit about your wife and and how uh, she, she, about her own call to the mission field, and and how all that came together, and how you met, and and about your kids, and so forth. Yeah, my family. I'm blessed. We'll be uh, celebrating 20 years of marriage here in a couple months. Congrats! And uh, thanks. We've got three kids. My wife's uh, Kirsten. Uh, we've got a Sierra. My daughter's 15. My son Drake is 13, and my other son Nolan is 11. And um, just really uh, feel blessed with them. But I I came down to San Diego actually to go to aircraft mechanic school back in uh, 1990. Uh, six and uh that 96 97 year of school and uh during that time i met my wife she was attending point loma uh, university and and uh i met her there and um you know it was an interesting she uh you know she'd always she'd done missions trips and really had had just kind of surrendered herself to god so it wasn't um she didn't have a specific call to a certain uh place or whatever um but she had surrendered her God to say, wherever you want me to go. And so when I met her, you know, the, even the first date we went on, um, I basically told her, I said, look, um, I mean, at this point, and I'll, we'll get there as far as um, how the whole Samaritan aviation came about. Right. But, uh, you know, a big part, I already knew by the time I met her that uh, Papua New Guinea was where we were, where I was called to go. And um, so I just let her know, hey, you know, I'm just letting you know. Uh, I'm called to be a missionary, um, bush pilot in Papua New Guinea, and if that's something you're okay with, and you're in, you know, you're okay with that possibility, where it's that I'm okay to continue to date, 
And if that's something that you're just not uh, feeling like is something you're willing to be a part of, then we should just be friends. And so I was pretty, mm-hmm. pretty wide, right out there in the open with it on the first date. And, uh, you know, she said, you know, I'm surrendered to whatever God wants for my life. And, and she'd been on missions trips to Portugal and, um, Mexico and, and, um, uh, and so she'd seen the world and had seen, uh, just had a passion to share God's love as well. So, yeah, so that's kind of how it worked with us. Um, and then a couple years later, we, we were married, and um, she's been there from the beginning, and it's been the, the rock, really. Um, and uh, it's just been a major part of everything we've done at Samaritan Aviation. All right, very good. I appreciate that, that background information on you and, and your family. Let me ask you this at, at this particular juncture. Do you have any advice, though, for someone who might be might not have gotten that very direct um, proclamation from God that, that they are to go uh, to the to the mission field, maybe wrestling with a call to to missions right now. Is there anything that you could could say to them as they are working through that? Yeah, I I think um, I, yeah, like you said, I was a fortunate one to get a very clear call at a young age. I think uh, you know, as other staff families have joined our Samaritan, and I've talked to them about their stories. Um, it's one of those things. I think you, you number one, you've got to surrender uh, everything if you're going to make it to the mission field. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean you're going to go to the mission field, but I think it's in all of our lives. You know, if we're really going to follow God's will for our lives and find what that is, um, we have to just surrender and be willing to do whatever. And um, if, if I think God leads us through our passions as well. And um, I think finding a, a mentor uh, is, is essential. And we can talk about that more later too. But um, I, I think that's, that's where um, getting some help, you know, if you're wrestling with it and you don't, don't know for sure, I think that's where uh, wisdom from a pastor, from, from someone who's already been there, uh, I think you can also investigate um, go on a trip. You know, I always tell people, um, it's like people that I've had people tell me, oh, they want to do missionary flying and they've never even flown in an airplane. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. you know, first thing you need to do is go down and pay an instructor, you know, a uh, hundred, whatever it costs to go fly for an hour and just see if you even like flying, number one. Yeah. Uh, whether you get sick or whatever. I mean, there's certain ways that you'll, you could find out pretty fast sometimes people have these goals and dreams or whatever, but they don't take the first step. And um, I think, finding ways to take that first step, go flying, go figure out, um, you know, in our organization, it's way more than flying. It's, it's a passion for people. Number one, mm-hmm. uh, flying is, uh, is down the list. Uh, it's a passion for God. It's a passion for, for people. And then it's aviation really, yeah. uh, to succeed in our organization because you're hands on, you're, you're with the people. It's, you're not just flying, you're not just flying a circuit. You're not flying a route with us. Uh, we, we are hands on with the people you're working in the hospital you're in the village, so there, it, you really it, you really have to have a passion to share to share God's love number one, and really a passion for the people you're going to serve, uh, wherever that is. And I think it starts with there. Um, and I'd also encourage people to get involved in your local church, and start serving and find out if if it you know if if it's a good fit. I, I mean, there, there's yeah, but I think the mentorship, finding a pastor, finding a couple that's already been. To the mission field, I think to, to me it's more than flying. It's 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 that missionary first, and that's really the culture of Samaritan. Is you're a missionary and then you're a pilot, 
You're not a pilot that happens to be a missionary. Um, and that can be different in different organizations, but for Samaritan, that's kind of the, 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 the number one thing. Uh, there's a lot of pilots that won't fit in our organization because of that, uh, because it's not about the flying, it's about the mission. Yeah, so missionary first, pilot second. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if you can get your life in that order um, and, allow, and then surround yourself with people that can speak into you, um, I think God will show you very clearly. All right. Well, that was a very good answer. I really appreciate it. So you've told me about how your, your passion for aviation sort of developed from uh, your family, your, your uncles and, and your, your cousins, and you sort of knew from a young age that you were uh, going to be a pilot of some sort. But why don't you go on now and tell us about, you know, when, when did you start taking lessons? When did you begin working of, on your actual flight training, and, and how did that play out and so forth? Yeah, so I mean, I'll go back a little bit too. When I was 19, I just, um, well, yeah, it's kind of a funny story, but I, I met a guy, a buddy of mine, uh, Gary Buston, in, in college and at Bible school back in Florida as an 18, 19 year old my freshman year. And uh, during that time, uh, we uh, had decided to to go to Papua New Guinea. He had been born there, a missionary kid, and so. Um, so, I'll, and I'll go into that more later, but we actually went to New Guinea. And then uh, literally two weeks after I got back from Papua New Guinea uh, as a 19-year-old, that's when I started aviation. And I just started, I didn't go to a Moody, I didn't go to um, a well-known mission school. I just went to the local Watsonville Airport there in Santa Cruz and I started flying mm-hmm. and uh, working. Um, I was really trying to avoid uh, debt. Um, that's something we can talk about later too, the the burden of, of what that does mm-hmm. to a mission aviator. Um uh, but I started flying um, as I could, and um, and then uh, after um, I probably got 20 hours of flying, I soloed and I ran out of money. Uh, then I ended up going to San Diego for mission uh, for my aircraft mechanic training, and uh, that was another thing. I went to a, a junior college because it was cheap, you know, um, yeah, for the mechanic side, and so. Uh, it was there I started the same thing. You know, I was working um, at a restaurant trying to get my pay my way through school, and so I started flying again there and finished up my 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 private license there in San Diego, and then um, finished up my AMP school. I was finishing AMP school. I started on my instrument rating. I had a, a guy that was an uh, amazing instructor who who basically um, you know did it for free because he knew what my passion was. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he instructed for free. I, by the time I finished my instrument, I had finished my A&P, and I had a, a friend who owned an airplane, so I was doing all the maintenance on his plane, so then I was able to fly for the cost of fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just filled the plane up. The instructor was free. And, um, and then I also had another person, uh, uh, one of my family members, my cousin, who had started to, to support me to try to help me get through uh, my instrument training. So anyway, it was it was a long process, though. You know, that's the other thing. Um, I started flying when I was nineteen. I I was it was at least a year and a half before I finished my private license, and it was another um, two to three years before I got my uh, instru- instrument rating. And then another couple of years, I ended up going up to Santa Monica. My wife's a teacher. Um, she ended up uh, getting pregnant we found out we were back in Papua New Guinea and so back up to Santa Monica living there and um, 
I was working at the Santa Monica Airport as an aircraft mechanic to get my experience, and then I finished my my uh, commercial license there, and that's really the only time I ever got into debt. Really, um, I had I uh, did take out a loan to finish my commercial training, and then I did my float training in Alaska. So anyway, um, kind of all of this over over seven or eight years. That was a long process. Yeah, that's something that that continues to to come out in in these interviews. Is that it is a it's a long uh, road, and you have to stay uh, committed to to where you're headed, or, or you're going to get discouraged along the way because it, it's not you don't just decide wake up one day and say I'm going to be a, a missionary pilot, and and it happens within the next year. I mean, it's this is years, maybe even a decade of working working towards it. Yeah, absolutely. So having served now on the, the mission field, how, how long have you been ser- flying in, in Papua New Guinea? Yeah, you know, we started uh, Samaritan in around 2000 as official uh, 501c3, and um, it's an amazing story. We've started with a prayer card of a, of a, a picture of myself and my wife, my, my friend Gary and his wife in front of someone else's airplane, and... We had a nice logo made, and uh, we came up with the name of the organization, and then we sent that out to 330 people and um, shared a little paragraph of the vision that we had of our five-year plan to get to Papua New Guinea. And uh, it actually took 10 years to get over there mm-hmm. from, from that. So we, we actually, I started flying in Papua New Guinea in uh, March of, or February 2010, so it's been around seven and a half, a little over seven and a half years uh, flying in Papua New Guinea. Okay, so having, having flown there for seven and a half, coming up on, on eight years, do you have any advice for someone who is currently in flight training, whether it be at a place like Moody or some other, some other school like that, or whether they're doing it the, the traditional FBO Part 61 route? Do you have some advice for those individuals who are who are working uh, toward that in-flight training now, some things they should pay particular attention to or, or areas they should focus in on and so forth? Yeah, I mean, the challenge is, obviously, is time, right? All of us, organ- all of our organizations, uh, we require 500 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, most, of them, most of us require that amount of time. So, you know, you're trying to get the 500 hours, but if you're getting that in a 172 in the right seat instructing, Right. Uh, you really don't know a whole lot, to be honest, when it comes to bush flying mm-hmm. or the real flying that we do. I, I shouldn't say real flying, but just the, I guess, the challenging uh, flying that we do on right. a regular basis. Uh, you're not ready for it. And so I've always tell people, and I have candidates that are in our process now, and it's like, well, you know, we're flying 206 aircraft, so you need to find time in a 206 airplane if you can. Um, even though we're on floats, and that's a whole other side of it. Um, the plane flies very similar once you're off the ground, you know, or off the water. Mm-hmm. And so having that time of, of a high performance, um, uh, comp, comp, we're complex as well because we have the gear in our, on our float. But yeah, so those, those things I always tell people, like, try to find uh, ways, you know. There's organizations that will let you come down and serve with them or um, there's different uh, programs where you can go to, a, you know, check it out, go do some flights. And I mean, there's, you know, one of the things that, I've talked to m- many people that, you know, they get over there and they just, it's, it's too much, you know, to, to be honest, the weather's too much, the strips are too hard, you know, try to figure that out before, um, 
it's a very challenging environment that we operate airplanes in, and it's it is very dangerous, and and uh, so it's one of those things that you just uh, really try to uh, try to get yourself out, get some real experience, um, even if it's just going over and serving in a parts bin somewhere. If you can go over, especially before you have kids, and you know, all of us once you have kids and and a, a family, it, it's a challenge, obviously, mm-hmm. to break away for a couple months and do. Mm-hmm. to do that so my my advice is man get over while you're young if you if you are if you know this is a they kind of where god's leading you and you you don't have anything tying you down like go over somewhere and just serve fuel airplanes for for one of these organizations for three or four months do an internship in the in the parts room see what it what it takes go on some flights some real flights if you can um and just know before you go and spend eight years getting over there that you can actually uh this is something that is for you, and that you're uh, you've got the the right uh, um, I don't know if the right personality is the right it's not the right word but the just the right uh, um, mental um, uh, joy and passion because sometimes you'll get over and you'll realize man I don't even like this you know I don't like this weather I don't want to I don't want to fight weather in the mountains you know mm-hmm. that's not what I signed up for mm-hmm. and. And uh, and just the pressure of flying people and knowing that your decision making is affecting uh, could cost lives. I mean, that, those those are things that uh, they're just real challenges that people uh, sometimes find out after they've already done all that work and effort, and then they realize it's not a good fit for them. And then that's to me, I'd just encourage people to try to find that out before. Yeah. So just because you enjoy flying doesn't mean you'll enjoy the type of flying that you folks are doing there in Papua New Guinea and other places around the world. Um, Absolutely. And so I, I think what I heard you say is um, don't just focus on building hours to meet that 500 hour mark, but focus on building the right kind of hours, the right kind of time and the right sorts of planes. And, and it may be even flying in some of the right sorts of places, whether that's doing some type of mountain course or maybe something like that. And, and and if you have an opportunity, go to the to the mission field and and see what this flying is really like, and see if you really are cut out to uh, land in some of these crazy places and deal with the, the, this crazy weather without all the resources that we have here in the states. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also the cultural aspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, for us, obviously, I knew where I was going, and I I fell in love with the Papua New Guinea people, and when I went there as a 19 year old. So I, it wasn't a question for me, but, um, I've brought over pilots. Uh, we always require everybody to come over for a couple of weeks and, um, cause we want to see how they react in the culture and see what it's like when, it, when they're jet lagged and uh, tired and hot and sweaty and, and, uh, things are not happening like they do here in America. Um, how do they respond? How do they treat the people? Um, you learn a lot about yourself through, through trips like that. And so, um, yeah, get your uh, get out there and um, try to experience some of that before you uh, spend eight years. That's my uh, that's my advice. Mm-hmm. Well, very good, and that kind of leads us into the the next segment, which is talking about the mission field itself, where you're at, and what it's like, and and even you know sometimes it's helpful to hear how it is just how it is different from what we are used to here in the States and so forth. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the place uh, you're serving and, and what the culture is like and, and what the people are like and the weather and so forth. Yeah. So, you know, we work in Papua New Guinea. We're on the, the North coast on uh, the Sepik 
uh, province. Uh, we we operate um, on a 700-mile river called the Sepik River, and um, you know Papua New Guinea. There's there's eight hundred eight million people in Papua New Guinea. It's actually the second uh, New Guinea is the second largest island in the world, mm -hmm. and uh, it also has um, you know over eight hundred languages. And so the interesting thing about Papua New Guinea is the fifth of the world languages uh, have come from Papua New Guinea. And uh, when you have these different languages, you also have these little subcultures. So Papua New Guinea is very different. You have, you have the kind of the coastal areas, island areas, and then you have the mountain areas. And right through the middle of the island, you have 14,000-foot mountains and um, 10,000. I mean, it's just this massive mountain range that kind of separates the north from the south of, on the island because it's, it's kind of facing that way, and it's just above Australia. And uh, so you, you have a, a lot of mixtures of people, of cultures, of customs. You can actually see people, uh, physically they look different if they're from the highlands versus the, the uh, coastal areas. It's a very interesting um, uh, culture. Hmm. Uh, where, so, for example, if you're working in the mountain areas, it's, it's nice, it's five 6,000 feet, and it's cool weather, and... Um, uh, you work on the coast, and it's tropical, hot, sweaty, humid, uh, Florida in the summertime type of, a, of, an, of an environment. So certain people I've, I've met over there work really well in the mountains, uh, can't stand the coast, and other people like myself love the coast and the heat and don't really like going to the mountains. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's, there is a huge difference in uh, just, just in weather and um, all of that in Papua New Guinea. And, uh, you know, you talk about different from you know how is it different from america i mean you know you've got these this culture that um you know it, it's it's a totally it's a shame-based culture it's it's a different uh, type of uh just how they how they their worldview is from a coming from a completely different uh spot uh it's very tribal culture um so so the expectations that we have are, are very different than the expectations they would have in the same situations. So there's a lot of learning uh, to do uh, when you first get there. Um, you know, for me, I I went there as a 19-year-old, and and um, it was it was one of those things where we we went around the island, and and for a couple of weeks we just lived on an island with the people, and uh, just no agenda really, but just to be with the people, see what it was like. See what their challenges were, um, and it was very clear for for us that there was two main things. There was a spiritual component, um, where there was there was a lot of places where a priest had just blessed an island, for example, um, or there just wasn't a clear understanding. And it's an animistic culture, mm -hmm. worshiping nature, ancestral um, and spirits, and so uh, coming from that, and then. Trying to mix Christianity, there's 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 been a lot of mixture of the two, mm -hmm. and um, and so seeing the need spiritually for spiritual discipleship, and then also seeing the need medically, um, just just the lack of access. You know, to give you an example, where we operate, there's one hospital for five hundred thousand people, mm. and um, you know, two hundred twenty thousand of those people live along this large river. And the only hospital is on the coast, right where we live in Weewak. And all these people live along this river with, with no access in an emergency. So, uh, you know, at the upper part, it's two to three to four days away just to get down to the hospital. 
at the lower part it's one to two days and so uh, there's really no hope for for most of them uh, if you have a snake bite a poisonous snake bite if you have a uh, a trauma wound there's lots of tribal fighting so if someone chops your arm off or you get speared or um, you have uh, pregnancy issues about 40% of what we do is pregnancy emergencies as far as that goes and uh, breech births and retained placentas and all of these these uh, issues and physical things the sicknesses that come up you know fall out of falling out of trees um, getting coconuts down or whatever and and no no hope to get to the only hospital and uh, so you have this remoteness and this lack of access, and, and what goes along with that is lack of education. So a lot of the people are not uh, educated uh, past fourth grade, fifth grade, and so you have you have just a lot of, of things where in, in the states we expect everybody to to go to school, and most people graduate from high school at least, and um, so there's a whole side of that that that's different. Um, uh, they they have this thing over there called the Wontok system, and it's it's a community. Wontok is your friend or family, and so you're expected, if you're successful, to share everything with your with your um, family members, and so that that folds into every part of the community. If you have a job and no one else has a job, you're you're responsible to send the kids to school, and you're responsible to keep everybody going uh, in town, and then out in the village, it's. You know, it's all subsistence living, and you're you're basically catching fish in the morning uh, to feed yourself. Um, there's no electricity, there's no water, no mostly uh, dirty water to drink, and um, there's all of those things and community health challenges. And um, you know, they're they cut their canoes out with a with an axe, and I mean, it's just it's like stepping back in time in a lot of these areas that we work in, um, and uh, that's just all they know. And so you're you're um, you're coming from America, and you're coming into that culture, and it's that's uh, a big, mm-hmm. huge shock for most people mm-hmm. um, when they when they see that for the first time. Right. Now I imagine there are large parts of Papua New Guinea that are that are like this. What is it that led you uh, specifically to the, the the part of the country that you were in? You know, when we first uh, we went back in two thousand. Um, on another trip after we had started Samaritan and we, we went around to different places and we kept hearing about the, you know, the, the vision had always been from the beginning to bring a, a seaplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no seaplanes in New Guinea. There hasn't, there hadn't been a seaplane in, in New Guinea since the seventies. MAF had a seaplane there in the seventies in the and uh, they'd had a, an incident um, with the plane in the river and uh, that was it. Um, they hadn't, uh, hadn't been a seaplane since. In the entire country, and so we felt like the seaplane. There's so much water there. We felt like it would um, would be the answer to a lot of these issues. And so we kept going to different parts of the country that were the remote areas with water. And we kept hearing about the Sepik. You got to go to the Sepik province. You know, there's lots of water. There's a huge need. The one hospital's on the coast. There's no access for the people to get to the hospital. Uh, Seven hundred mile river, um, and so that. Over and over, we kept hearing about the desperate need of the Sepik province. And so that's what drew us over there. We, we, we went um, in 2001 for the first time to WeWAC, and we drove a car out to the river. Uh, it took most of a day to get out there, and then we got on a canoe, and, and uh, we went up the river a few hours to visit a little village. And it was very obvious, you know, uh, looking at 
uh, at that area that, that a float plane could revolutionize how healthcare was uh, was brought to those people, and uh, so that's really where uh, where the um, what drew drew us to to WeWAC, and that's that's where we've been serving ever since. All right. Well, why don't you talk a little bit now about uh, Samaritan Aviation? We've we've talked a, a bit about it, but why don't you tell us how it uh, came into existence and and who was participating in that that process from the beginning and and uh, just give us some insight into to the background of the the organization. Yeah. So you know, my my buddy and I, Gary, went over in 1994, and we saw the need. And uh, I was 19, he was 21, we came back. And um, in 2000, we launched Samaritan as a 501c3. And basically, we came back and both of us went to, to college. I went to aircraft mechanics school, went to pilot training. And, um, and basically just working to get over to Papua New Guinea and to, um, to share God's love. And the, the original vision was always, was, was basically to be the hands and feet of Jesus. How can we go over... Uh, bring people in when they have emergencies, bring medical supplies out, bring, bring uh, pastors out, educators, uh, train in the villages, um, and bring up leaders. And, and, and we feel like we can, you know, the whole idea was, was the plane could be used as a tool to be missionaries. And so it, that was really the, the whole, um, base or the of, of who Samaritan aviation has always been as missionaries first pilot second and how uh, this airplane can be used as a tool to share Christ and uh, in this area no nobody else was doing it in the same way um, we there was no other float planes there uh, we also felt like we didn't want to charge for the flights and so um, we wanted to offer a free service to the people that couldn't afford it as they had no other way in and uh, so that was kind of the, the original vision. We came back. Um, the first thing we did was we, we found, founded a board of advisors. Uh, we got our nonprofit status. And, um, and then we just, like I said earlier, we, we sent out this prayer card to 330 people with a picture of us on the front, um, someone else's airplane, and just said, this is our, our goal. And, uh, you know, that was the beginning of a long, a long journey. I think we got a, a couple uh, attaboys. Uh, go get them, you know, good mm-hmm. luck. I think we raised about $330 out of this uh, <laughs> 330 mail out. You know, we, we expected this mass amount of money to come in. and um, But, it, you know, we were so young and, and uh, so passionate that we just, it didn't phase us. And we just kept talking yeah. and telling the story. And we slowly, we slowly grew. We actually had a hangar and an office in 2002 that we, that we, we got in, in Montrose, Colorado. But we didn't even have an airplane. So we had a we had a hangar, we had a great logo, the same logo that's on the tail of our airplanes today, and uh, you know bit nice business cards. We had no airplanes, and people would always ask us, "Oh, hey, what kind of planes do you guys fly?" And it was always a very embarrassing moment yeah. where we uh, we had to explain that we had an hangar in an office, but with no airplanes. And uh, so we we had formed through our travels, we had formed a, a relationship with Wings of Hope in St. Louis, and. Uh, they ended up selling us uh, an airplane for fifteen thousand mm. dollars. It was a one eighty two, mm-hmm. and so that was our first airplane. And we started flying down to Mexico um, to to get that international flight experience to do mm-hmm. missions. We wanted to 
to uh, do missions now, but we knew Papua New Guinea was a few years away based on funding and needing the airplanes and all of that. So we started flying to Mexico and bringing volunteers down. We'd have up to 12 airplanes, uh, private aircraft, flying down to this little remote dirt strip down in Baja and serving uh, medically with the uh, migrant farm workers there. And so we worked with the missionaries down there, and um, every two months we'd, we'd do a flight down. Uh, so we did that for a few years. As we, and all the while, the, the ultimate goal was Papua New Guinea, and we, we would go to Papua New Guinea every couple of years. We'd continue developing relationships, um, continue to, uh, to refine the, the goal, the vision. Um, and uh, so we did that for many years. In, 2000, um, in 2006, six seven, we, we finally actually were able to purchase a, a float plane. We bought this, this old, worn-out 206 from uh, Hawaii, um, and, uh, for $110,000 that needed a lot of work. And we, uh, we spent the next year and a half working with Wings of Hope, um, and myself and I would fly back to St. Louis and we would work on this plane and raise money and then work on the plane. And this, this went on, um, and around 2008, we finally finished the, the airplane and we actually uh, did a bit of a national tour with the airplane and went to Oshkosh and air show and stopped around 56 different spots between 2008 and 2009 just sharing the story trying to bring awareness to who we were because nobody you know mm-hmm. a big challenge with any organization is nobody knows who you are you know when you start an organization and then um you know most people don't know where Papua New Guinea is so we were kind of at a at a, at a two two issues there that we had to overcome. Number one, we had to educate people in Papua New Guinea why it was important for them to care uh, about some people that were 10,000 miles away. And then the other things we had to uh, to tell people about who we are and we're a young aviation organization. Number three, we'd never been there to do this work. And so, and no one else had done what we were trying to do, which is offer a, a seaplane service in a, in a, a river that's 700 miles long that rises and falls up to 20 feet in three days. We could talk about more the dangers of working there, but um, a lot of junk in the river, lots of flooding, um, trying to, to do this in an area some people said it couldn't be done. Um, some people that had been in New Guinea for many years, um, aviation people. And so we were kind of overcoming a lot of different um, things there, but we, you know, the passion never, never stopped. And we just kept telling the story. We kept praying and God just kept slowly, you know, building it up and we were trying to be there in 2005 and it took till 2010 but you know looking back it was just God's hand on our own lives uh, getting us ready uh, to be effective over there um, and uh, getting the, the base of people to support us to make sure it sustained itself anyway um, building those government relationships and so um, yeah I could go on and on about the many miracles that 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 kept happening but it was just amazing to see it just Every year we get a little closer, a little closer, and finally in 2010, January, uh, January my family and I moved over uh, to launch uh, the flight operations over there. And um, I can tell you what a moment that was mm-hmm. um, to fly into WeWAC for the first time <clears throat> with the airplane. I ended up packing it in the container, shipping it to Port Moresby, uh-huh. uh, putting it together. Port Moresby is about 500 miles from WeWAC. It's the capital of Papua New Guinea. And then flying it over the mountains and then in, into WeWAC with, uh, with Gary and with our, our aviation advisor, Bruce Johnson. And, um, you know, just an amazing, amazing moment to actually show up and, 
and uh, finally, finally get there after you know the call coming in uh, 1994 with with this with Samaritan and the vision in 1994, and it took us till 2010 to actually get an airplane in Papua New Guinea. And uh, I can tell you, I, I the the first emergency flight that we ever flew out onto, I remember this. Uh, I'll never forget it. I was Bruce Bruce Johnson and I were. We're getting the plane ready. We get this call to go out to this remote village on the Sepik River. And, it's, of course, it's bad weather. It's raining and low clouds and everything. And, um, you know, I'll never forget rushing around trying to get the stretcher in the plane and all of those things. And we flew out and picked up this, this, this pregnant mom who was unconscious and um, brought her back into WeWAC. So it was only a 30-minute flight. And um, got her in, rushed her in for emergency surgery. And... Um, Go back the next day to the hospital and see this lady, Antonio's her name, and um, to see this newborn baby, you know, sitting there with her, mm-hmm. um, uh, just amazing moment uh, to see these two lives that have been saved by the airplane and um, all of those years of telling people, you know, we went, I mean, ten years we're going around America, we can do this, is this what we're going to do? And um, you know, half the people believed us, some people didn't, um, but to just go, wow, God, you helped us to do this. We saved two lives right here. And, um, just an amazing uh, moment for me personally. Um, uh, and you know, the family named the baby after me and, um, wow. it's, you know, to have a, a little baby named after you is a, is a big, a big, um, honor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just a few months ago, I was able to go visit uh, Mark in his village. He just turned seven years old mm. and visit with his mom and dad and, and his sister. And, um, uh, just a reminder of God's faithfulness. And um, what we've been able to to do over there. Yeah. So at 19 years old in 1994, all the way to 2010, 16 years later, uh, that's that's a long ride, man. Uh, that's that's a long ride. So I I commend you. And and I also you know couldn't help but but thinking um, how helpful or how fortunate it was that you were uh, 19 and kind of. Um, uh, naive about the challenges <laughs> yeah. in front of you because I mean this is an enormous thing that you have pulled off and um uh, you know as a now we're it sounds like we're about the same age I'm I'm 41 and yeah. and uh, uh you know it sounds ludicrous for me to think about a 19 year old uh, having this vision and, and pulling it off and 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 you did it so congratulations it's a it's a great a story not only of your your commitment and your faithfulness, but also obviously, and you would you would admit this, I'm sure, of, of God's faithfulness in His work because it's it's too big of an undertaking to have you just have accomplished it, you and your buddy. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's it's a total testament of God's of God's faithfulness, and also it's it's uh, I hope it's a faith builder to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when God gives you a dream or a vision. Um, to follow it, and uh, just because it doesn't happen overnight doesn't mean it wasn't from God, you know. Yeah. It's easy to get discouraged. And we were too young, and I know you used the word naive, which was a, which is a polite word to say. <laughs> uh, I think that, that is true. Um, it, it, never, it never dawned on us that it wouldn't, wouldn't work. I think that was, yeah. you know, that was the part that uh, other people missed, maybe. And I think also one of the things people, I, I have a lot of people come up to me and they're, they want advice because they want to start an organization. And the first thing I say is, is, is anybody else doing what you want to do? 
because if there is, you need to join them. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. don't don't start an organization uh, if you don't have to, because um, it is it is way harder than you've ever dreamed, and it'll take everything you've got and more uh, to make it happen. And there's no reason to duplicate what other people are doing, and and I see that uh, in New Guinea, and it's very frustrating when you have two people trying to do the same thing. Uh, but not working together to do it, and it's 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 so uh, important that you you've number one find out what's going on where you feel called to go, and number two find out if someone else is already doing what you have a passion for. Because joining them, you can make them twice as strong. But if you try to go and do your own thing, you're really going to actually make it weaker and and uh, maybe take resources away from people that are already doing it. So why don't we uh, continue on by giving you an opportunity now to tell us about, you've mentioned it a little bit, but tell us about the, the types of planes that, are, that Samaritan uh, uses and, and the types of flying that you do there and, and the types of missions that you, that you send your pilots out on and so forth. Yeah, so we use, uh, we've got two Cessna 206, um, we've got a, a 1980 and a 1981. And so that um, we use Aeroset floats. They're the new fiberglass uh, floats uh, by far. Uh, I've used Edo's and I've used others, but the, the Aeroset floats are, are amazing uh, on the 206 uh, airplane, uh, especially with the amphibs. I think that's where the biggest difference comes in, comes in is, is uh, uh, the amphibian um, takeoff and, and uh, performance is much better. But... Uh, so that's that's what we work on. We, you know, you basically fly off of a hard strip in in Weewak. There's a paved strip there. It's about um, 4,800 feet long, um, and so we're based in a hangar. And then we everywhere we fly is all water. So once we leave Weewak, it's uh, there's a 700 mile river. We have over 70 different locations that we land in. So we're covering a very large area um, from the top to the bottom of this river. Weewak is loaded, located kind of uh, toward the lower middle part of the river. So our average flight, um, it's about 40 miles, if you the closest part of the river. Um, and then our upper reach is about 128 miles. And then our lower Sepik uh, River area is around 60 miles. Um, so our average flight's around 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And uh, we work in an area, there's uh, mountains right next. So we live on the coast. And then there's a, a ridge line of mountains. It's around 2,500 feet, 2,000 feet. And then if you go west, that goes up to 5,000 uh, feet uh, plus. And if you go to the east, it actually goes down um, and actually um, becomes the river actually cuts through there. So um, lots of lots of mountains right away, uh, but not super tall mountains. Um, and then it drops back down on the other side of those mountains, and it's all almost sea level. I mean, the top of the river is only 300 feet elevation, uh, which is why it's a, it's a very uh, slow-moving, very large river. And then we also operate in a lot of different lakes and smaller rivers that feed into the Sepik area. And so it's, it's a lot of, uh, we're dealing with a lot of weather, um, lots of, uh, for us, uh, a, lot of, a lot of pilots, once they land, the, the job's done. For us, once you land, the job's beginning in a lot of ways and so there's a lot of things on the river that you have to deal with for landing uh, mm-hmm. uh docking and taking off so you've you've mentioned that uh one memorable flight in particular about uh, getting that um 
mother to the to the hospital so that her life and her baby's life could be saved. So obviously you do uh, that type of flying. What other types of flights do you take? Yeah, so our main focus is uh, is emergency life flights. Uh, about 60% of all of our flights uh, would fall into that category. We also do medicine delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've delivered 128,000 pounds of medical supplies oh, wow. uh, to these remote uh, aid posts. We work with about 38 different aid posts and, and health centers along, that are along the river. Uh, we also work with 10 other NGOs that are over there. Uh, a lot of these clinics happen to be uh, church-run, actually. Uh, Catholic Health has about 22 clinics, and there are several evangelical uh, uh, Pacific Island Ministries and some other groups that have uh, clinics as well. And so we work with all of those uh, to bring staff in and out, uh, to bring the medicines in. We also fly uh, and do vaccinations. We have uh, medical staff on our on our um, medical personnel on our staff now, and so we'll go out and, and do inoculate a whole village with vaccines. Uh, we we do disaster relief. Uh, we've helped stop cholera outbreaks, whooping cough outbreaks, malaria, um, measles. Um, so we're, we're, we're quick responders whenever there's any type of a health uh, crisis in this whole, whole area. And to give you an example, in 2009, the year before we came, they had a cholera outbreak there and 3,000 people died just oh, wow. from the cholera outbreak. And so, you know, being able to go in, we had one uh, outbreak that came up like this and uh, we were able to go in with, with personnel medicine in three days, they had 93 cases, but be- because we were able to respond quickly, only three people lost their lives. Mm. And uh, so being able to go in quickly, if there's a, if there's a flood, if there's, I mean, we've, we, the last couple of years, we've had some of the biggest floods in the, in the Sepik River in the last hundred years, and we've had some of the biggest droughts. It's amazing uh, the different um, the water levels that have gone up and down. And so being able to go in and help um, people um, in need to do drought assessments, flood assessments, um, bringing in those medical supplies. We also do some search and rescue on the ocean there when boats go missing. Um, so there's some of that flying as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, there's the community uh, health evangelism part where we're going in and, and uh, flying in uh, pastors to do leadership and discipleship training with the leaders of the villages. And so that's another a part of what we do. Okay, so... Uh... Lots of medical-related flying and, and even all the way to flying uh, pastors and, and teachers in and out so that the church uh, in that country can be built up. Yeah, that's correct. And another thing we do that I think is a, is, is a big part of our ministry side is, you know, we, one thing about Papua New Guinea is when you bring a patient to the hospital, the, the hospital doesn't take care of the patient physically. They'll, they'll administer medication but it's a it's a, another villager's responsibility to feed the patient, to bathe the patient, and to take care and look out for the patient. So mm-hmm. if you can imagine, um, you lived in this remote village along the side of this muddy river. You've never seen the ocean. You've never seen electricity, uh, vehicles, and you get picked up by this plane that lands on the river and taxis right up to your village, to your little grass hut there loads you in or your family member and flies you straight into to WeWAC and now you're seeing the ocean, you're seeing a vehicle, you're seeing electricity. I mean, the things that must go through the mines, I always, I try to put myself in their shoes and I can't even wrap my head around what it would be like uh, to go from living in a hut, never really going anywhere, to now seeing civilization, people um, 
you know, with cell phones and all the rest of the stuff. And so, you know, we have a team that goes in every day. Uh, we have Papua New Guinean staff uh, as well, and they, they're going in every day and they're ministering to the patients we bring in. A lot of times we have between 10 and 15 patients in the hospital at any given time uh, because we're very busy with these flights. And so you've got people you're ministering to every day and the caregivers that come in and then their family members, if they happen to live in town. Um, there's a lot of people from the river that have squatted in town as well. So you have some connections there. And so being able to minister to those people, sharing God's love, praying for them, bringing them food, clothes, um, and just sharing God's love with them and, and sharing the gospel message with them. And that's a huge part of what we do. Um, and uh, that has been that way since, since the very first patient we brought in. Yeah, so you're, you're using these, these airplanes and, and what they can do with regard to, to moving people from a remote uh, part of, of the country to a hospital, and you're using that as a platform when you're, when you're able to, to share the gospel and, and the good news and the hope that we have uh, because of Jesus Christ. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I was um, telling a story about the other day and just the Samaritan, you know, the good Samaritan story in the Bible, it's interesting, the, the guy that helped, you know, it's two cultures that came together there. The, the guy that helped the other guy, he wasn't a doctor, um, but he had transportation to get the guy to to a doctor. And that's really what kind of Samaritan aviation, mm-hmm. really, you know. We aren't doctors, although we do have medical staff now, a trauma nurse on staff full time and, and another nurse that's on staff. And uh, but we, we get people to the hospital, you know, we aren't doing the surgeries, uh, we're not delivering babies, but we're getting people to where they can get the help that they need. Um, and that's really what we do. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. I should, that's something I should have asked about how, how did the name Samaritan Aviation, um, come to be the name of your organization? So thank you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you would say that the flying there on the mission field compares with the the type of flying that you did and some of us are familiar with back here at home. Yeah, it's hard actually to even give a reference, um, to be honest. I mean, we we uh, we don't have weather out there. There's no weather weather reporting. So you're 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 there's some satellite maps from Australia that you can look at to kind of get a general trend of what where the rain is or what if it's an actual system versus an isolated it's a tropical environment so every afternoon you're going to have uh big thunderstorms and lightning and all of that stuff that's just a given um and so you know not having the weather so you're you're basically um sometimes uh, most of the time you're launching without any information uh sometimes we can we get uh, access to the village uh through hf radio or through a cell phone and some of the Villages have cell phones now. They put towers in along the river. So sometimes you can get a weather update, but not always. Um, and then you're also dealing with um, villagers trying to give you an aviation weather update. Yeah. <laughs> and they've got someone dying, and so the weather's always good. You know? You're right, you're right. So, uh, you know, so you're dealing with those challenges. Um, so that, that's a big, a big difference. Um, obviously, the... Um, you know, people that come out that have flown in America, they, they fly, they, they kind of get their mind blown a little bit, to be honest. Um, you just, just, you just do what you need to do, um, in a safe manner. And we're landing in this, we're landing in the, in these places that, you know, you're dodging fishing nets and you've got canoes and crocodiles and, <laughs> um, uh, trees that are a hundred foot wide, you know, tall drifting down the river with roots sticking up 50 feet in the air. And, and then you're trying to dock along the side of a bank and, uh, you know, between two trees. There's no docks. 
uh, it doesn't exist. And so, yeah, there's so many things that you just would never um, even deal with uh, on yeah. this side. So it's very hard to even compare. There's there's really very little comparison to be honest. It's a, like it's it's a completely different type of flying. Uh, it takes a completely different um, amount of skill and and uh, um, experience to to survive over there. Um, but you know, getting getting from point A to point B, a lot of times it's it can just have some similarities. But once you're dealing with you know with the wheel guys, they're dealing with mountains and the and the and the weather and um, short strips and all of those things. And for us, we're dealing with the weather and some of the mountain stuff, not as much, but a lot of our work happens when we touch down on the river, trying to read the currents and, and figure mm-hmm. out if, if the water's deep enough. You're looking at um, chocolate colored water and trying to make a decision of whether that's water's deep enough to land the float plane, um, whether there's a sandbar under there and just trying to learn through uh, that experience. Um, definitely for me, I I was um, t- pretty terrified the first year and a half I was there um, because I knew I'd taken us so long to get there. I'm the one that's responsible for this airplane that all these donors and supporters and mm-hmm. everybody back home is mm-hmm. counting on me to make that decision. And when I'm operating in a place that hasn't had a plane, a float plane in 40 years with people around saying it can't be done, and yeah. I'll tell you, there was a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, but God was God was faithful and helped me uh, to make those those right decisions. And so, yeah, it's it's a whole different whole different way of flying. All right. So it has wings and a propeller, and that's about where the similarities end. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the stalls and the steep turns, yeah. you know, all of those skills are the same. You, yeah. know, you learn all of that, but the decision part. Yeah, of it is completely different skill set. Yeah. So you've told us that one great story about your first uh, flight there that that memorable uh, story with the with the mother and the child who's now named Mark. Do you have any other stories you would like to share that sort of stand out from from the other uh, days that you've flown or something that you think particularly would communicate the type of work that you're doing there? Yeah, you know, I had a, um, there was this another, uh, mothers always seem to, you know, it's, it's a big deal to me. When my wife, um, had our first child here in, in California. My my daughter was in the ICU for a week, and my my wife had a retained placenta. And uh, you know, my my daughter um, is born, and there's immediately code blue, and all these people mm-hmm. in masks come running in, and resuscitator, yeah. and all that, right? And so whenever I see a mom in P and G, and I you know I come up in the plane, and they're they're unconscious, and they're laying in a yeah in a bottom of a dirty canoe yeah. Um, that really hits home for me. And uh, I remember another uh, story and uh, picking up this lady and unconscious once again, we're trying to get her in the airplane. There's not enough space for her husband. There's, there's space for a, a caregiver. Usually we bring women in as caregivers because the men don't like to go in the maternity mm-hmm. area and the women take care of, uh, are better at, uh, taking care of someone in the hospital typically than, uh, than we are as men. Right. Uh, and in that culture, especially that's uh, kind of a taboo area for the men to be in the maternity ward. So we, we bring in the, the, the ladies and their, their caregiver. And then the men usually will take the long way down uh, a couple days or whatever it takes to get mm-hmm. into the hospital. And so I remember we picked up this one lady completely unconscious. We rush her in once again, it's, it's emergency surgery. Um, and, uh, you know, she ends up, uh, two days later, this, the husband comes in 
and uh, we we talked to him, and he said, you know, um, you know, in this culture, uh, you you always bury uh, your dead back in the village. That's a cultural thing. So whether it's a miscarriage or whether it's an older person or whether it's a young person, you always have to get the body back to the village to be buried. And um, so he, you know, the first place he goes is the morgue because he's been told by all of his villagers uh, that, that there's no way his wife's going to survive and, um, or his babies. And so he goes to the morgue uh, to, to reclaim the body and work through that process. And there's nobody there. So, you know, he starts walking around the hospital asking questions, find his ways, way to the maternity recovery area and walks in and there's his wife sitting there. Uh, holding twin babies <laughs> and uh, you know just talking to this guy and we we just it was just an amazing moment he looked at us and he said you know I'm a I'm not a good man I'm a bad man I don't deserve this but God sent you guys here to save my wife and my babies mm. and um, I tell you that's that was a powerful moment yeah uh, for my wife and I to share Christ with this this young family and just <laughs> you know just to to he realized that he did you know, none of us deserve what God's done for us. Yeah. And uh, we're here because of his grace. Yeah. And uh, anyway, that's, that's an, uh, an awesome story. Uh, another, another story that is uh, amazing is really cool. We, we had a, um, another call to room. Uh, these are all uh, mothers and baby stories. I've got a lot of other stories too, but these, that's fine. <laughs> these, uh, I can see her more later, but we, we, um, you know, we have this, uh, we get this call out and this mother had, had twins in the village and, um, and, uh, but there was still something going on and they're trying to figure out what's going on. She's still not doing well, not recovering well. So the next day they call us in, please help us very remote area. We get in there. There's actually a tribal war going on. Uh, so we, everybody has to stop. We kind of have to make get permission to get this lady in and get her out. Um, and we rush her in and she, she, uh, goes on to the surgery table find out she's got triplets so you've got a third baby uh and she ends up dying on, oh, the, man. on the operating table and so now you have this baby in in um you know the family takes the body back to the village this lady has eight other children already back in the village mm. so her husband doesn't know what to do uh, and they ask one of our our uh families the, the cook family sarah and chris who have our medical directors to to Hey, can you look after this baby uh, for a few weeks? And so, anyway, taking her turn to a short story. Six months later, they asked this the Cook family to adopt this young girl. Yeah. And so her name's her name's Charlotte. And uh, anyway, so she's it, it took about two years, but now she's officially adopted and in, into the Cook family. She lives on our base, and so she's my little buddy. But you know, this yeah. little girl is a reminder every time I see her. Mm-hmm. Of, of what we do um, mm-hmm. and the lives that have been saved. And I could go on and on from snake bites to guys that have been ran all the way through with spears mm. and uh, uh, knives in the chest, arms removed, all of those things and coming in and saving their lives. Yeah, uh, Retained placentas uh, over and over again, infections, uh, poisonous snake bites where they literally have, have lost all control of themselves. Mm. And, and we're in the village administering anti-venom, and they come back. Um, but it's all because uh, of God's faithfulness and allowing us to be there, and and um, and all the supporters we have in America, our board, our 
our advisory board, our mentors. I mean, all of this is is a testament to their faithfulness. I I have, um, you know, and this is one of those things too. I just want to encourage people: don't get discouraged. You know, when it takes a while. I I have friends that literally supported our family for uh, ten years faithfully mm. every month before we ever got to New Guinea full time, and. Um, you know, it blows my mind that those those people uh, believed in us enough. You know, uh, I don't know if they believed or not, but they they believed that we believed, and, yeah. and they gave faithfully uh, to allow us to do what we do today. And uh, I'd always um, am amazed as I look back and just go, "Wow, how in the world, you know, did you support us for ten years uh, before we were able to actually go over and do what we told you we felt God calling us to do?" Yeah, um, but it's amazing. I mean, the staff the staff is growing over there. Uh, we have four families now. We have two more pilots coming next month, and um, just yeah, God continues to to uh, to grow it. Uh, the impact we're having now is 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 amazing. I mean, I was able to speak a couple weeks ago as in, in Papua New Guinea, and uh, you know, to speak at the National Health Symposium, and I'm I'm I get up there in the afternoon of the first day, and I look at the the list of speakers, and I've got um, I've got an honorable, uh, which is the mayor of the of Port Moresby. I've got the right honorable, which is the prime minister who spoke before me. I've got uh, a lord, mm-hmm. a, uh, somebody with a lord, another guy is a knight, mm-hmm. and and all these doctors and professors. And in front of my name, it says Mister. And uh, <laughs> you know, I got up there, and I'm like, guys, I'm you know, I, I'm just a guy that that God gave a dream to, and uh, and here I am, and. Um, Anyway, just a, it's an amazing moment that, you know, sitting with the prime minister, having having the Papua New Guinea government recognize what we do, uh, fund forty percent of what we do through grants, through through foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it's just been an amazing. It's just been one miracle uh, after another, and I feel like we're just beginning. You know, I'm so yeah. excited about the future and where yeah. God's leading us. Yeah. Well, I really, really do appreciate all that. Just really good stories and understanding about the organization and, and so forth. You did an outstanding job explaining all that to our listeners. Why don't you, though, one thing I try to, to do on this show is make sure that we're not um, simply presenting a, a romantic version of things. You know, I want people to understand there are real struggles. There were struggles along the way. You are still struggling today, I'm, I'm sure, with operating this organization and, and being uh, on one side of the world while family and friends and loved ones are on the other side of the world. So why don't you, if you don't mind, and you could even start with, you've talked about it a bit, but if there were particular struggles you had during your flight training that, that made things uh, difficult and discouraging, and, and even today, what are some of the struggles you deal with? And they, they can be, um, you know, the separation type of thing, the cultural things, or even spiritual struggles, if you don't mind uh, going into those. Yeah, I think that's, you know, um, that we never like to talk about our struggles, but the, the reality is that, um, you know, all the times that I've grown as a person uh, or as a leader or, uh, and all the preparation that, that happened for, for me to be successful and my wife and family were through the struggles. But, you know, those are faith-building times. Um, mm-hmm. I remember the early days when, when I was a youth pastor and worship pastor, and I... Uh, my wife's getting her master's degree in cultural, um, cross-cultural education. And I'm, you know, trying to finish my, uh, instrument flying and we literally have no money. 
And I remember uh, going to my wife and saying, uh, babe, we don't have any money. We can't even go to the store and buy a loaf of bread right now. And uh, literally walk out to the mailbox, and there's a gift card to a grocery store mm. that some anonymous person had just sent to us. Um, and, you know, those are faith builders. I think uh, those times over and over again when uh, people would say, wow, you're still here? I thought you guys were in New Guinea three years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's just kind of the embarrassment, really, uh, that those moments brought yeah. uh, to it. Those are close people that you, you know, that you respect. And, and, uh, so you kind of get some of that. We, we got some of that over, over the years. Um, you know, being in New Guinea and being down to $2,000 in the checking account of a aviation organization, yeah. uh, you know, that doesn't last very long. Um, when it costs about a thousand dollars and 800 to a thousand an hour to operate. Yeah. Uh, and so you're, you're, those are just faith building times really um but they're real and i think one of the things i always joke about is god gave me the gift of stick to mm-hmm. um and uh you know just the 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 ability to believe that it was his i was so firm in the call and the belief of where he was leading us that i didn't question it um as hard as it was it wasn't easy at all but um you know god was i just saw him um you know, it didn't always go the way I wanted. I, we spe- expected to be there in five years. It took 10 years, for example. Uh, you know, um, but he always, as you look back, you could always see where his hand was there. Mm-hmm. And and he, he just faithfully uh, brought those areas of, of frustration, of challenge, and turned them into uh, creating something in me that, wife or our family that allowed us to then be successful when we went over there i think even on the mission field we were the new the new new guys you know the the you know who are these guys over there trying to fly fly a float plane and uh do it for free and um you know uh you know um there was some of that going on when we got to new guinea and trying to work with missionaries that had been there a long time and Mm -hmm. and really just not feeling feeling adequate or prepared, but knowing God had called us and we're just going to keep moving forward. And, um, you know, and then, but that, you know, that all, that all goes away and, and, um, just amazing respect for all those people that have been, been there and done their, been there for so long and been so faithful. Um, but you know, it just, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's hard. And then, then you, you leave your family and, you know, I just came back a couple months ago. I'm back and forth right now to New Guinea. My kids are doing a year of school here in the States. And, um, you know, I hadn't seen their grandparents in two years. And then this last week, my grand, my mom and dad came out. And, mm-hmm. you know, those things where they, you kind of lose a whole chunk of time. Like, you know, my grandpa passed away while I was in New Guinea. I didn't ha- get a chance to go to his funeral. Um, those things are, are hard. Uh, you miss weddings. You miss, you miss uh, big events. And, um, but you know, that's the, the life that God, God has called us to. I have, we have Papua New Guinea family now too, mm-hmm. um, uh, that are just like family members that, uh, that we, uh, stay at our house and we stay in their village. And uh, so, you know, you kind of, you, you get some of that too. God, God allows you to have those, those relationships. And, um, so, you know, as you look back, you know, yeah, there's, there's some things you're going to miss. There's some some sacrifices you're going to make. It's it's a dangerous 
place. There's lots of sickness. There's there's lots of things that we deal with that uh, you don't deal with here. But uh, just knowing that that where where God wants you really is the the safest place you could ever be. Uh, anyway, that's kind of my my wife always likes to remind us of that. <laughs> and and uh, it's true. You know, it doesn't mean it's it doesn't mean it's the safest place, but it means that's where you're supposed to be, and that's really what matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest is up to God, anyway. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think um, I think I would I would encourage people to, you know, as as they're beginning, um, you know, you can't wait till you've done eight years and you're ready to go to the mission field. Now you're starting to look for donors. You know, the reality is is every one of your friends and people you've met in the last eight years should know what God's called you to do and what you're doing because once you finally get there, now you have a list of a hundred people that are ready to support you uh, versus. Uh, trying to all of a sudden decide you're going to go to the mission field and um, now you're trying to build up a, a support base. I mean, the, you should be developing your team now. Um, I started developing a team as a 19-year-old. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and so by the time we were able to go over there, there was there was the people that were behind us. And so that's something I would really encourage people to think about and be intentional about um, as well. But that's a different... Uh, different topic but yeah i think um once again you know god's call keeps you keep you pressing forward his faithfulness and as you can look back and see uh, what he's helped you accomplish and um i think that you know you made a statement about how amazing it is what we did but we didn't think it was very amazing you know we were just doing what god called us to do mm-hmm. and looking back yeah it was like wow god how in the world did we pull that off yeah and we didn't it was through god mm-hmm. Given us that extra strength, those those uh, relationships, those those pivotal people that came in to the organization just that right time, whether it was financially or or uh, advice or whatever, uh, that allowed us to get to that next level. And I think that um, there's so many examples of that at, in Samaritan Aviation. I I always tell people I'm the lucky one. You know, I I actually get to do it. I get to I get to yeah. look those those moms in the face and the, those people that have lives have been saved and and those people that have accepted Christ uh, through what God has allowed me to be part of. And, and uh, that, to me, is, is, is awesome. Very good. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit. You, you mentioned earlier that uh, your advice would be to find a, a mentor. So I'm curious if you had someone you would say was a mentor to you along the way, or even friends and family members who, and I'm talking about beyond financially here, but that supported you in, in unique ways along the way that sort of helped you press through the struggles that you were encountering? Yeah, you know, at a young age, I I think I was around, I just got married, I was probably 23, 24, um, working as a youth pastor and a worship pastor, and I just, I felt like, um, I don't know, I heard a sermon, I talked to someone, and they, they really encouraged me to like, get a mentor, and um, I did. I reached out, found that person. Uh, I started praying, you know, number one, I just started praying, God, you know, who, who in my life or there's someone I need to meet that can, can mentor me. And so I, I started meeting with this, this, this guy every couple of weeks and he wasn't a pilot or, but he was just someone I respected his walk with Christ. I respected his, uh, his life experience. And, um, and so it was great. It was a challenging t- a time. He would challenge me in my marriage. He would challenge me in, in the, the goals and, and uh, my my personal walk with God. And um, 
I did that for several years. Um, on the aviation side, we had a, an aviation uh, advisor uh, who had been a former MAF pilot um, in Colorado, Bill Rush. Uh, he was a great uh, uh, mentor. And then um, Bruce Johnson, who was an Alaskan float bush pilot for 40 years and helped start the Kodiak program. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he became uh, my mentor, and he actually came to... Um, he trained me in America, and then he also trained me over in Papua New Guinea for the first uh, couple months that we were there. We flew for about a month over there before uh, he came home. But yeah, so those those uh, those those people are invaluable. You know, I think um, so many times. I think we and that's a whole different subject. But I think the the elderly or the older people get pushed out of the way, and the reality is they have all the answers because mm -hmm. <laughs> we we all are way more smarter than we were. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, or at least I hope we are. And, and to imagine if 20 years from now, we're going to have a lot more wisdom than we do now. And so many times we, uh, we sideline those, the people that have all the answers. And so I think finding those people in our lives that, and I still do that, 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 um, you know, try to surround yourself with people that are, that are better than you, uh, more, have more wisdom than you. Um, and, uh, that can uh, to help you get to that next level because it's very difficult to do that on your own and and the uh, the amount of learning you have to do there's no reason to make the same mistakes others have made when they can point them out to you before you make them so that's that's a big one I think also mentors give you um, the fact that someone's been there done that um, you know especially if you find a missionary pilot or someone who's who's uh, been a successful aviator um, they've been there done that. Um, and uh, so I think that's a that's a a very important part of it. Well, all right. Well, sort of bringing things to a to a close. I wonder if you do have any because uh, at this point you could serve a bit as a mentor to some folks. So, so I wonder if you have any final suggestions or advice or encouragement for prospective missionary pilots. Or let, let's pretend this. Let's say you could go back as a forty-something-year-old mark and talk to 19-year-old Mark, what advice and encouragement would you give to him? Yeah, I would tell him, you know, um, <laughs> you know, it's worth it, number one. Um, I, I think I probably wouldn't tell him too much, to be honest, because uh, <laughs> if I knew what I know now, as they say, you know, who knows, but, uh, you know, yeah. the, the amount of effort and years, I think um, just being realistic, I have, I was, I'm a very a goal setter. I have I have high expectations of of myself and those around me. I think I think uh, I would I would tell myself to uh, uh, to realize it's a process that God uses the process to get make us uh, mold us into what we need to be when we get there. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. I wanted it right away. I wanted it, you know, and God just kind of allowed me to to uh, plot along. Um, so I think don't be discouraged. I know. Um, you know, when, when you look at an organization where it's requiring this much, you know, training and they want you to have an AMP and they have all these things, I mean, you can just give up right then. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I think that's, that's a huge, huge challenge. Um, but just know that it's that hard, you know, um, you're not going to go out and be a weekend warrior in Papua New Guinea or Africa or, or, uh, Philippines or Mexico or whatever. I mean, that's just... Um, you're not ready for it. And so I think um, as hard as it is and all the, 
requirements that we all uh, organizations require. Just know that we're those are there because uh, there's been years and years of of, of missionary bush flying, and, and we've all seen uh, failures, and we've seen accidents, and we've seen other things that have caused us to to have those requirements. So don't be discouraged, um, uh, but also understand you got to count the cost, and um, you know it's going to take years to accomplish it. And and uh, you're not going to have a doctorate <laughs> when you come out. Uh, you're yeah. not going to make a bunch of money, um, but you're going to have an impact on the world. Okay, thank you. Well, I wonder if there is a a book that you'd like to recommend to our readers, or maybe more than one book, and and it can be something about missionary aviation, or something that helped you grow in your Christian walk, or even something that helped you in your flight training. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to share? You know, for me, it was uh, we had I had a book before I moved over over to New Guinea. I'd read a lot of different cultural books. I think it's important, to, especially if you know where you're going, to do your research on the culture. Um, you're never going to learn. You'll learn most of it after you get there. That's the reality. But at least kind of have yourself ready, uh, somewhat prepared for what you're looking uh, working in. Uh, I was uh, recommended to read this book called The Spirit of the Rainforest. Um, and it was a real eye-opener for me as I, as I looked at our role as missionaries in the culture and um, of, of how, how it looks from the, from the people's perspective. And the book is kind of uh, from a witch doctor's perspective, actually, as he looked at the um, different white people that came into his village, one, you know, whether it was missionaries or philanthropists, or uh, not philanthropists, but... Um, um, it's escaping me, but people who study their cultures and, and all of that, um, you know, how, how they see us as we come in from a, with our Western ideas. And, and it's a real challenge to, to all missionaries and for me just to how, how you look at culture. Um, what are you bringing to the culture that could be damaging? Um, how do you see them in their culture? Um, it's, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's a very stark, real uh, book that'll shock you a bit, but I think for me it was good. Uh, I needed that, and it really changed how I, how I viewed my role in the culture was, and I think that's, that's a big deal. Um, how we see the people and the mindset that we come in with um, will really help you be effective in your ministry over there and, and in your relationships uh, with the culture that you serve. And that book's written about... Um, I think believe it's the Amazon area, so it's South America, but it's very similar okay. uh, to Papua New Guinea. So for me, that was a very helpful book. Um, and I'm always reading. You know, I'm reading leadership books. I'm um, just trying to uh, figure out better ways to communicate uh, God's message to the people mm-hmm. um, and to the people here in America who I'm trying to challenge and inspire to to join us financially or to join us in prayer or to or to join somebody that's in their community doing something, or to go do something themselves. I think that's, that's a big part of my passion, is to motivate others to, to do something, whether it's themselves or to help someone else get there that already has the call and the passion, um, and get behind people that are doing things or go out and do something themselves. So how could our audience be praying for you, Mark, and for your family and for Samaritan Aviation in general? Yeah, Samaritan, you know, we're, I'm back and forth this year. I've got kids in school, and, and so we've, we've 
just working on leadership in New Guinea. Two new pilots coming next month. We're raising money for a new airplane that we just bought, a, a, a 206, and we're refurbishing it right now. So we're raising funding for that. Um, just a lot of things I see changing in the next couple of years. I, I see us branching out to a different part of the country even. And I see God doing some really uh, amazing things in the governmental support and uh, partnerships that we're working on. So just prayer for um, for that. And ultimately, just just pray you know, that... that um, we can stay faithful to the calling that God's given us to be the hands and feet of Jesus and um, to show to show the people in Papua New Guinea that um, you know who Jesus is in a real tangible clear way um, that's really the goal for everything we do and uh, just prayer for safety uh, for the, for what we do and um, and just continued uh, wisdom as we move forward okay I'll definitely be uh, praying for those things, and I trust that, that folks who listen to the show will uh, add those things to their prayers as well. How can people find out more about uh, Samaritan Aviation? Say if, if someone's interested in su- becoming a financial supporter, or, or maybe even we have some individuals here who are, are training to be missionary pilots and are interested in, in what your process is. How can they, they learn more about Samaritan Aviation? Yeah, you can uh, learn more about Samaritan Aviation at uh, samaviation.com. You can also go to our uh, Facebook page, Samaritan Aviation, and uh, start following us there. Uh, but the best thing uh, financially, if you want to get involved and uh, to see opportunities, uh, just check us out at samaviation.com, and uh, there's ways to donate online, or, or uh, you'll see an address and all those things. Also, we're I'm happy to come speak. Um, I'm here for the next few months back and forth, but I'll, I'll have some opportunities if you have a church that would like me to come share the story or a, a men's group or whatever, just uh, get in touch with us um, at contact at Samaritan Aviation. And um, yeah, we'd love to come and, and share the story about uh, what God's doing in Papua New Guinea and, um, and how he's uh, uh, molded our lives and, and given us this opportunity to uh, share his love in a remote area. Okay. And and so how could people connect with you personally on, on social media? I know you've got an Instagram account, some other places. Would you like to share those with the audience? Yeah, my Facebook. I mean, it's just Mark Palm is my Facebook account. Uh, Mark.palm is my, uh, is my Instagram account. I, um, yeah, so it, you can, you can, uh, you can check that out. You can also, there's, there's other stories you can just google samaritan aviation there's some cool videos out there there's media stories um, that might help you get a better uh, grasp of what we're doing and what we've been up to the last several years all right well mark i really enjoyed our time together today you have certainly a fantastic story uh, to share and i'm glad we've been able to listen to it and, and share it with our our listeners and 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 that includes the story of samaritan aviation as well you are doing fantastic work, and I will be praying for God's continued blessings upon you and your family, and I hope that uh, we can stay in touch, and always please let me know if there's anything that I could ever do for you, okay? Thanks, Jimmy. It's been an honor to uh, speak with you today. All right, buddy. Well, thank you so much. Yep. God bless. God bless. Well, that's it for this episode. We thank you once again for listening. You can learn more about the podcast and subscribe to it by visiting plainfaith.com. That's P-L-A-N-E faith.com. You will also find links there to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
If you are interested in becoming a patron of the show, you can do that as well by visiting patreon.com forward slash plain faith. And of course, Jimmy would love to hear from you personally. So feel free to email him at jimmy at plainfaith.com or by using the contact form on our website. Until next time, remember that God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The intro and outro music for the Plain Faith podcast is a song called Chipper by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.com.